0: Okay, we're um, we're going through the Sefer of Yehoshua, which is the first of the Neviim and we're holding by Perikhes, by chapter 8. Um, so the Jewish people already entered into Eretz Yisrael, they passed through the Yardin, uh, the great nace, the miracle of the splitting of the Yardain. and then they conquered the first city, which was Yerichai, also accompanied by tremendous uh, miracles, with the wall sinking into the ground. Um And then, last week we discussed that Yehoshua had made a chirem, which means that he said that everything that they would, um, all the spoils of war, anything from Yerichah is only for Hashem, no one should take any benefit from it. And there was one Yid, who it seems was a quite wicked person, had many stories behind him, and his name was Achan, and he had taken, um, he had not listened, and taken from that chirem, unbeknownst to anyone else. And then by the next battle, which was the city called Ai, so the Jewish people lost, um, which was shocking to all of them. Here they were going with the miracles of Hashem, they lost, and people, people were killed, or at least one person was killed, one great tzaddik was killed, and Yeshua was told by Hashem that basically the Yidden had sinned, and they, then they found out who it was, Ochon was put to death, and that was the end of chapter 7 of Yehoshua. And that brings us to where we are, which is chapter 8, Perukes in Periches is when they go back and have that battle against that city of Ai, where again, they had lost the battle the first time around because of that sin, but now that that sin was atoned for, so Hashem tells Yeshua, now you can go and battle Ai, and, which they do, and interestingly, with a very interesting type of a, um, uh, what's the word? Uh, the, the word in English is escaping me. Ma'arav. That's a type of a trap, basically a type of a trap that they made, um, whereas uh, they had uh, Yeshua split up the nation, and some were coming towards the city, some went behind the city, the people of the city came out towards them, and the and the Jewish people that were from behind came from the back, and they were able to conquer the city. Actually, more says about how this battle was done than any of the other battles of the other cities for reasons that are not clear to me. Um, an interesting pasuk. Here, where it says the night before Yeshua was preparing them for the battle and he was setting them up at their different positions, um, and here the pasuk says that Yeshua vayelach Yeshua b'alayla hahu Literally, that means that Yeshua went that night in the amek. The amek is like the valley, but the word amek also means a place of depth, like the word omek in Hebrew is depth. And Chazal tell us, the Gemara says that on that night before battle, Amru Rabbi Seinu, Shalon Boimka Shel Halacha. He was very involved in, in learning and understanding and uh, deeply studying the depths of Halacha. And that's an amazing concept. Here we have Yeshua, who's really, on the one hand, when you, when you read in the Psukim, he's a, um, he's a general. He's a general of the army. He's leading Klal Yisrael to battle. and all these battles, he really leads. But on the other hand, Yeshua is this tremendous Sadiq who was the disciple and successor to Moshe Rabbeinu, and here he had this amazing ability that while in the morning he knows he has this battle to do against a nation, against a, a nation that they had actually fallen before the first time around, and in, in the evening when they're not battling, he has the presence of mind and the ability to engage himself not just in a quick tefillah, or a quick um, you know say, you know l- learning some mishnayis. But to get involved in the depth of halacha, the oimek of halacha. And here the Gemara is telling us a tremendous message. And obviously for, for regular people it's not so easy. But the ability to be able to, even when things are going on and even when things are uh, hectic, to be able to set one's uh, mind aside and sort of say, uh, pick yourself up from everything going on around and study Torah. And that's the message of that story of Yeshua. Here he's going to war the next morning, but on that night he's lan ba'imka shel halacha. Um, just an interesting quick story from our generation is we know that the Rebbe and the Rebetzin were um, in Germany when the war broke out, when, uh, when the Nazis, when the Nazis uh, began in the 1939, 1940. And the Rebbe and the Rebitson were escaping. They went from Germany and they went to Nice. And there's a whole, today we know exactly how they went step by step. And they were escaping the Germans. And ultimately, they were able to get to Portugal. Lisbon, and from there they took a ship and were able to get out of Europe and come to America. And that was, uh, it seems, the last ship that left the port um, from there and wasn't torpedoed it wasn't, and, and they weren't killed. It was a tremendous uh, um, day that celebrated in Lubavitch still today how the Rebbe and the Rebbe were able to escape the Nazis. But what's interesting is that that last night, the last night Mamish, the night that he was leaving, when he had nothing with him, everything was ready on the ship, we have a writing that the Rebbe wrote, an, an extensive idea in Torah, um, full of, uh, full of um, references, which everything was by heart, because he had no sforim. And whenever he quotes something, he says uh, to look in the Gemara on a page, and he leaves the page blank. He says, uh, leaves a parenthesis to fill, to fill it in later. And here you have a similar idea, where on the one hand, he's running from the Nazis, and he's on the way onto the boat. But what is the Sadik doing? He's involving himself in writing and, and thinking deeply, Um, And ideas of Torah, something uh, unique, a unique message. Of course, Sadiqim are able to do it at a level that most of us can't. But from all of us, the ability to sometimes just be able to engage our mind, even when there's so much going on. Anyway, let's move on. Um, So, and Kalal Yisrael is successful in that battle against the nation of Ai. And then at the end of this period, we learn a very important part of a story which really ends an old story that starts in Chumash. It says that at that time, they built a mizbeach in Har Evel, the Mount Evel. Now, Evel is already something that Moshe Rabbeinu talked about in the Torah. In Parshas Kisavoy, which is one of the last Parshas of the Torah, Moshe Rabbeinu tells the Eden, you're going to come to Eretz Yisrael and you're going to find two mountains, and it's Har Grizim and Har Evel. And it's in those two mountains that you're going to uh, make a covenant with Hashem, a bris with Hashem, accept all the words of Torah, and in those mountains, the Kayanim and the Leviim will give brachas and clolis. blessings and curses, blessings for those who listen to the words of Hashem and curses for those who will go against Hashem. And again, Moshe Rabbeinu describes all this, it's in Chumesh Devarim, he says that there's the two mountains and half the nation will go to one mountain and half the nation will go to the other mountain, six Shvatim Manish mountain. And the Kayanim and the Levim and the Oren will be in between. And they will say the Brachis and the Klalais. And everyone will answer Amin to both. So Moshe Rabbeinu really described the whole thing. It's in the Chumash and Parashat where We read the curses and we read the blessings and the story of the Kayanim and the Levim. But Moshe is just saying a mitzvah for the future. Um, it hadn't happened yet during Moshe Rabbeinu's lifetime. But in this chapter of Yehoshua is where that uh, bris, that covenant is described um, as the pasuk says, as yiv, az, uh, yivna la uh, Yeshua built this mizbeach. Moshe, Hashem, as Yisrael, as Moshe, the servant of Hashem, had told them, and they did. He went through the entire all those steps. It says that on the mizbeach, on the actual stones of the mizbeach, they wrote the Torah. They wrote the Torah, parts of the Torah, parts of Chumash Devarim. Um, and at that point is when they made that verse, that covenant with Hashem. Um, interesting. Interestingly, the wording of the Pusik is Az yivne Yehoshua um, So loosely translated, it's that's when Yeshua built the mizbeach. But in correct Hebrew grammar, Yivna is future. Yivna, he will build. And here Chazal say why Yivna? It should have said Az Then he built. And here they say that this is one of the sources. The Gemara says bana nemar ella Yivna. This is one of those sources where the Torah is written in a way telling us that there's a future part of the story as well. There will be a time when there will be Yeshua. Yeshua will come back and he'll build Mizbeach again. Um, interestingly with Moshe Rabbeinu, the same thing we have Az Yashir. Same idea, the Az Yashir that we say every day in Davening. The same question, uh, Hebrew grammar should have said, Az shur, then he sang. Yashur means he will sing. And the Gemara says that, yes, in the Torah, in a number of places, we have references to Tchiyas Amesim, Even though it doesn't talk about Tchiyas Amesim in clear words, in the Chumash at least, um, in the Nevi'im we have, but the Torah is filled with um, references that whatever happened will happen again. And this is one of those places where it says, Az Yivne Yehoshua. Um, And it goes through again that, that covenant and it says that everything that Moshe said, Yeshua repeated, <laughs> There was nothing that Moshe had said to do that Yeshua did not do. And this was done um, in front of all the Jewish people, the women and the children, the converts, everyone was gathered together. And this was one of the great Krisas Bris, one of the times that Klal Yisrael as a whole made a covenant with Hashem. As we did it by Harsinai, and now we're doing it coming into Eretz at the beginning of coming into Eretz Yisrael. Last week already we pointed out a number of things that were similar, just like before Harsinai, so too coming into Eretz Yisrael. This was considered a new rebirth of Klal Yisrael, and therefore there's, there was this Krisas Bris, this uh, covenant that was created as well. And that is a summary of chapter 8. Okay, which brings us to Peric Test to chapter 9. In chapter 9, we uh, the beginning talks about that n- number of the nations were gathering in order to wage battle with Yeshua, with the Jewish people. You have to remember, Eretz Yisrael is a land that has 31 kingdoms in it. And that's an amazing concept. Eretz Yisrael is a small land, as we all know. Till today, it's not big. Um, then perhaps it was a little bit bigger, but it's still a small land. And it was a place of 31 kingdoms. 31 kings had armies in Eretz And the reason for that is because everyone knew that this was God's promised land. This was a blessed land from the beginning. And every nation wanted to have something, wanted to have a peace. So as in the next few chapters, Yeshua is really waging battle after battle. There's 31 nations that are going to have to be conquered. So they're gathering to to battle, wage battle with the Jewish people. And here we have another again, famous Tanakh story, and that is there's one nation that is going to trick the Jewish people. And that is this chapter, chapter 9, and that is the nation of Givon. Givon is one of the nations there, and they were very afraid of the Jews, and therefore they concocted an entire plan. And the plan was they sent a delegation to Yehoshua and to the Jewish people, but they told the delegation said that they're coming from a very distant place. They're not coming from the land of Israel. They're coming from a distant place. And the Apostle says that they got dressed in old clothing as if they were traveling and they had old food with them. And they made a whole play. And they come to them and they say that uh, we came to make a covenant, a promise of peace between your nation and our nation. And that was the nation of Givon. And they were talking to the, Nisim, to the um to the leaders of the Jewish people, who at the beginning were hesitant to make that promise, but ultimately they did make a promise to this um, tribe or this nation of Givon. And they made a, they a covenant, a covenant of peace, a bris shalim, between the Givonim and Klal Yisrael. And a couple of days later, it became evident that they were tricked. Uh, it became evident that they they, they found out, they heard that really, instead of as this nation had said that they're coming from a far-off country and they're coming with their, again, their old fo- clothing and food and so on, really they're next door and they were one of the nations of the land of Israel. And the Jewish people were very upset that the nation had tricked them. But Yeshua said, if we made a promise, we honor the promise. He says, otherwise it's a chilel Hashem. Um, although we were duped into it and therefore, therefore technically, even halachically, there's ways if a person promises... Um, under a wrong pre- um, pretext. It was a mistake. They were duped into it. So there is something called hataris nadar, there's ways to get out of a promise that was made by mistake. And yet Yeshua says something that was done by it was done in the public and it was done by the leaders of the Jewish people. So there's the concept of of, um, of Hashem, of desecration of Hashem's name. And therefore Yeshua says that these people, they're, they're a cursive people because they're dishonest. Um, and but nevertheless we won't touch them and they are going to be servants to the Beis HaMikdash and servants for Klal Yisrael. and he said they are going to be the, uh, the water carriers and the wood shoppers the servants primarily for Hashem and the Beis HaMikdash are for the Jewish people that's the, that's the story of, mm-hmm. of chapter 9 um, but there's a point that needs a little bit of clarification which I think is an important point which is we're were the Jewish people allowed to make a covenant with a nation in the land of Israel? What was the the halacha? When Yeshua and the Jewish people are coming into Yisrael, and there's 31 nations there, what options are they really giving them? Um, When you look into the Pasuk, most most of it is battle, and therefore most of these nations are totally killed out. But if a nation would want, could they make some type of a peace pact with Kalal Yisrael at that time? And this is an area that a lot of people are unclear about and are, are also uncomfortable with. Because what happened? The Jewish people come from Egypt and they just start killing out nation after nation. What's the story? So I want to just quickly go through the Rambam deals with this from a totally halachic perspective. And the Rambam says, he says, and I'm reading if somebody wants to reference, it's in the laws of Malachim, the laws of kings, Perik Shishi. Chapter 6 of the Laws of Kings, and the Rambam actually devotes a number of halachas to this. He goes, a number of halachas, going in detail. And he says, Ein osin milchama im adam ba'olam. Halachically, we never wage any battle with any person. At shekorin lo shalom. First, we have to give them the option of making peace with us. Um, And the Rambam is very clear that that option was given to all of the nations in the land of Israel or Canaan when Kalal Yisrael came there. In fact, the Rambam writes that when Yeshua leads Kalal Yisrael into Israel, he gives them three options. And I'll actually read the words. Rambam writes, he says, There were three letters that Yeshua um, sent before he comes into the land. Harishon, the first he says, He says, Hashem gave us this land. Whoever wants to leave, if you want to just leave, you want to you know pick up and leave and go to a different place, um, you have the ability to do so. And in fact, there's a nation that did that. We know the Moshe Rabbeinu keeps on talking about coming to the land of seven nations, and he mentions the nation of Girgashi. Um, and the Gemara tells us that that entire nation picked up and left Israel. They just left that. They moved, and that was the first option Yeshua gave. He says, if you want to leave, you can leave. And then he says, "Mishere'otze lahashlim yashlim." Whoever wants to make peace with us which means to accept the seven mitzvahs of Bnei Noach, to cut out idolatry, but live with peace with Klal Yisrael has the ability to do that. And then he says, number three, if you don't want to leave, and you don't want to make peace and accept the mitzvahs of Bnei Noach, then if you want to do battle, you'll do battle. That was the three options that Yeshua gave. Ultimately, what do we have? We have one nation that actually leaves, and that's the Girgoshi. We have one nation that makes peace with them, and that's these Givonim that we're talking about and we have the one nation, and then we have the rest. The vast majority does not want to leave and does not want to make peace and does not want to accept mitzvahs, and they do battle with the Jewish people. So the obvious question is, if Yeshua gave them an option to make peace, so what did Givon do wrong? They made peace. They they made a bond. They made a covenant with the Jewish people. The answer is because they resorted to trickery. They didn't do it in a straightforward way. So Rambam asks, but why... Why did they resort to trickery if the option was given to them? Why did that? Why did they do that? So Rambam writes, "Imkain mipnei ma herimo Givon." Why is it that the inhabitants of Givon? Why did they? Why did they resort to trickery? Says the Rambam, because initially when Yeshua sent and gave them the option, they did not accept that option. They didn't want to make peace with the Jewish people, and then they thought. The Givayim thought it's too late. Once we didn't accept it the first time, it's too late. And that's why they resorted to trickery and tricked the Jewish people, and they made that pact with them. Um, however, it was their mistake. Because really, it was okay. You know, They could come and, and say, we're willing to accept the mitzvahs. Again, not not the 613 mitzvahs, the 7 mitzvahs. Um, but so ultimately, what, what happened, that they made a covenant with the Jewish people is not a problem. And Rambam writes... So why was it so? Why were the why was Claudius Yisrael so upset about it? Um, why why were they so upset? Because they made that covenant and they were not supposed to make a covenant with the nation with the seven nations. Um, they were supposed to accept them and give them their mitzvahs, and they were tricked into that, and that's why um, Klal Yisrael was upset by what happened. But that's that's an important halacha to know, and guess uh, what? The Ramam writes he got straight out of the Gemara and the Midrashim that Yeshua initially gave those three options. One again, one nation actually does leave, and that's fine. One nation makes a pact, but through trickery, and the rest wage battle, and that's the story of the battles of Eretz Yisrael. Okay, that is. Rabbi
1: Selberberg,
0: I don't understand the trickery part. I'm sorry. Like, did they just pretend they were going to make a covenant with, like, uh, accept the Noahide laws and then not do them? No, no. The trick, the trickery was that they said that they're not from the, they're not from this land. They're not from Eretz Yisrael at all. They came and they said, we're not from here. We're not part of the nations of Israel. We're a distant nation. We journeyed for many years, well, for many months. Or I don't know. I don't remember the day how long they said, and therefore we want to make um, just a covenant with you without accepting anything. Now, ultimately, Yeshua said they do have to accept it because they're living here. But they came from a different angle. They said, we're not part of these nations whatsoever. Words, Hashem promised this land to you. We're not part of this land. We're from out of town. We're from uh, a different country, and we're coming to make a covenant with you. That's how they, That's the trick that they resorted to. Again, because they thought that at this point it's too late, because they didn't accept the offer the first time, and that's why they came with this story. So, he just accepted that story and didn't ask, like, Hashem, if that was okay, if somebody could live in the land without accepting the Noahide laws? Like, why would he let anyone live in the land at all without accepting the Noahide laws? So, that's a good question. It doesn't seem to me, and I'm not sure about what I'm saying now, I would want to look further into it, it doesn't seem to me that they said they're necessarily going to live here. Again, they're saying they're visiting from a distant place. And they're just here to make a peace treaty with this Jew, with the new Jewish nation of the land of Israel. So they came as if an outsider, we want to make a peace treaty with you, you're a great nation, you're a strong nation, you're going to conquer this land, we want to make peace with you. That was how they came, that was the pretext that they came with. They didn't say we're here to stay and therefore we want to have the laws of one who stays here. Now once they made that peace treaty, so Claudius Yisrael was bound to it, or at least they felt bound by it, but they did at this point insist that they accept the Sheva Mitzvahs. So, do you say that they left again? They didn't stay in the land, therefore, they didn't take the Noahide laws, and they didn't. No, no. no. They went back home, but home was very close. Home was really. Oh, lived there. Right. <coughs> home was the next town over. Right? The Jewish people didn't know. They, they They said we're here from who knows where, and they got their peace treaty, and they went back home, and that was the end of it. So then did the Jews then eventually battle with them? No. No, no, no. The Jews did not battle with them. In fact, the Jews were headed towards there to do battle with the next city and they walked out with a peace treaty and says, what do you mean? We have a peace treaty with you. And that's when this whole trick was discovered. And once so the, now the Jews say, well, we have a peace treaty. They brought it to the Nassim, to the leaders of the, of the nation, who brought it to Yehoshua. And Yeshua said, listen, they tricked us. Obviously, Hashem wasn't consulted. Was were they supposed to consult Hashem? I don't know. I don't see that it's brought as a critique against them. Um, not every question that they asked did they have to consult Hashem. But they were tricked over here. But ultimately, again, if what's important to understand is, the end of the day, there was nothing nothing wrong really happened because, as I said, Yeshua had given them that option in the first place. It's just that. As, as the Ramam told us, they thought that they didn't have that ability anymore, and that's why they wanted to trick the Jewish people into it. So they were really tricking them into something that really they had the right to do um, through accepting the ben Beninayach, which they ultimately had to accept. Okay, got it. Thank you so much. Good, excellent. Which brings us to Perek Tes, or Perek, I'm sorry, Perek Yud, chapter 10. And chapter 10 is a fascinating, really a fascinating chapter with some of the great miracles of Tanakh in chapter Yud of Yeshua. Um, what happens? So the beginning of the chapter, you have a number of nations, which are really cities led by kings, that get together to fight now with the Givonim. Because they hear that, the, that this nation of Givon has, has a peace treaty with the Jewish people. So the other kings were not happy with that. So you have the king of... Excuse me. Um, the king of Yerushalayim and Chevron and Yarmus and Lachish and Eglon. And some of these are obviously Jerusalem and Chevron. We recognize other names we don't recognize nowadays. And they all come together, and they're going to battle against Givon. And Givon sends an SOS to Yehoshua. They say we're in trouble. Come save us. Now that that's you know that's a chutzpah. <laughs> Here you just trick them. You trick Yeshua into a peace treaty. Now they're being um, beset by, by by their enemies and our enemies, common enemies, and they said to Yeshua, can you come and save us? And Yeshua sends the army out. He says, yes, we're going to come and defend you. And there's a, actually a very beautiful medrash, a powerful medrash. The medrash says that Yeshua himself wasn't sure. Should I go save them? I mean... True, they've accepted upon themselves So in a sense, they're like gerim. Now, when you say gerim, they're not full geirim, they're not converts, but they've accepted Hashem and accepted the Sheva Mitzvahs. So Yeshua says, "Bishvil should, should I bother everyone and go to war and go to battle to help these people who are really not friends and they're people who just tricked us, And Hashem tells Yeshua, and this is, I think, a very important quote. Hashem tells Yeshua, and I'm reading from the Medrash, He says, If you push away those who are more distant, ultimately you push away those who are close as well. In other words, the message is, as long as someone wants to be connected, even if they're more distant and even if they're not the type of people that we feel that the, that they're really friends or they're really part of us, he says, we have to be mikariv. We have to stand up for them. And then Hashem turns to Yeshua and he says, Yeshua, think, where do you come from yourself? Because, who's, let's remember, Yeshua is a descendant of Ephraim. And who's Ephraim's father and mother? Yosef at Sadik with... Asnas, the daughter of Potiphar from Mitzrayim. So Hashem says you know you come from Gerim too not from friends. We have to be Mekariv not mirachik. That's what Hashem tells Yeshua when Yeshua is in doubt do we go out to help um, the Gevoinim but they do and that's what happens. So Yeshua takes the the armies and the Jewish people out and they're fighting now a number of different nations because as I said there was five nations that got together to fight the Gevoinim And Qal Yisrael fights them. And then we have some tremendous miracles that the Navi tells us about. One of them, the first one is, that when that nation is running away from the Jewish people, there are great boulders of borod, of uh, hail, stone and hail mixed in together, that fall down from Shemayim, fall down from heaven. And these stones um, actually kill many, many of uh, these armies, of those five nations that were fighting the Givonim, And the Medrash tells us something fascinating, and that is that these stones are in heaven from, still from the hail from Mitzrayim. Way back from Mitzrayim. Um, in the end of Parshas Va'era, we have, what is it, the is seventh? The seventh of the Makos? Borod? No, yeah, seven. The seventh of the Makos is Borod, is hail, and Again, there's an interesting pasuk in the end of Parshas Ve'ira where um, Pari tells uh, Moshe, you know, Davin to Hashem, to stop the hail from falling to the earth. And Moshe goes out to Davin and then the pasuk says that the hail, V'leinitach the hail that was mid, in middle of the sky of falling, never fell, it stopped. It says the Medrash that everything that Hashem creates has a certain purpose. And even those boulders, those, those st- hail stones that were sent from heaven but stopped because the Qasemitesh Rabbeinu Daman, they should stop, were waiting for the time that they would ultimately be used to fulfill a similar um, purpose of punishing those who are wicked. So here we're talking about uh, many. We're talking about 40 years later, or yeah, about 40 something, 42, 43 years later. And somehow all of this uh, hail was put into some type of a reserve, and now is when it fell down. It fell from heaven, and this is the same burrow that fell in Egypt, that falls when Klal Yisrael and now are in Eretz Yisrael, and falls on these enemies of the Givonim, but ultimately the enemies of the Jewish people, and that causes them to lose that battle or causes a, a great part of that defeat of that battle. And that's just another side interesting lesson about how everything has its purpose. And, and this, in Hashem's world, everything, we don't see that, and we only, we only see one step and one uh, one point. But ultimately, every person, and not just a person, every item, everything, serves a certain shlichus of Hashem. And if that shlichus is for whatever reason not fulfilled today, it will be fulfilled tomorrow, or 40 years down the line, or wherever. Hashem has time for everything to fall into place. But that's... Yes. Just a question. W- wasn't the hail also at the time of Noah when it came down? No? There, does it say their hail? Um, I somehow thought it was also when Noah left that there was this fiery hail that came down. I might be wrong. You but might. You room. might be and you might be right. I don't remember. I don't recall. But there is actually, now that you're mentioning that, the measure says that that hail wasn't finished at this time. In the time of Givon, and will come down one third time. It says by the Melchemist Gogu Magog. When Mashiach will come and the final enemies will, will be ultimately be destroyed, it says that those Avonim, those stones of hail and fire will be used one third time. So I don't remember the Noah angle, but definitely these three times in Mitzrayim and then in the story of Givon when we're conquering Eretz Yisrael. And finally, the Medrash says in the times of and Magog, and it bases it on certain psukim, I think, in Eov that um, that uh, refer to it. But those are the three times the Medrash mentions for those stones of hail. But this miracle actually pales in comparison to the next miracle, which happened then. And again, gotta be one of the most famous miracles of Tanakh. And that is that on that day, Yeshua raises his hand and says, Shemesh Begivon Dom. That the Sun in Givon, because that's where this was, should stop. And the sun in mid-sky, mid-sky stopped its, uh, its, uh, its regular cycle um, for the sake of this battle. In fact, we know the date of this. The message tells us that this was Gimel Tammuz on the third day of Tammuz. When this um, awesome miracle happened, when Yeshua stops the sun from its cycle. From, from continuing its regular cycle. Now, look, now, why? Why did he stop the sun? And it's interesting, we have in the mepharshim in the commentaries, two explanations to why Yeshua felt it necessary to stop the sun then from its uh, cycle around the earth. Um, the simpler explanation is because here we have many nations together of the enemies of the Jewish people. This is a very important battle that has to be fought. And as night falls, it becomes very difficult to chase them and to finish the battle. So on a practical level, Yeshua wanted to give his soldiers, in the Kal Yisrael, the ability to finish the job, finish that battle with all of those nations who had come together to fight them. So that's a simple reason. The Midrashim say a different reason. That is that that day was Friday. This battle was on a Friday. And Yeshua did not want that his people should have to be Mechal Shabbos. They're in the middle of a battle. And you can't stop in the middle of a battle. Okay, sorry, we have to go light candles. We'll see you again tomorrow night. Come back after Abdullah for round two, right? So, so therefore, Yeshua says, we'll, we'll hold Shabbos because Friday is not going to finish so fast. Medr says that the sun just continued held in a spot for 36 hours. So an entire day, the entire night and the entire next day. Friday was a really long Friday. You know, sometimes we feel like we can use that on Friday, right? So Yeshua held the sun still for the entire Friday, Friday night, Shabbos day, and it didn't set till when it would be Matzah Shabbos, so Shabbos was pushed off one day. And that was, so there shouldn't be that level of Chilol Shabbos. And that's again, it's, uh, there's no question that the Pesach says about this net, that before this, such a thing never happened. After such a thing, the, the words of the Pesach are Mahu, Ula Acharov. It never happened, not before and not after. Asher Yishma Hashem Le'ish that Hashem should listen to the word of a tzaddik to change the basic way the world runs, the way Hashem put into creation. And that's what happened then with Yeshua and that story of the, of the stopping of the sun. Now, it's interesting, the word, the wording for Shemesh Begivon Dom, what does the word dome mean? So here dom means to stop, but you, normally dom is to be quiet, is to stop speaking. Dimamah um, is quietness. So why? It could have said, shamash begivon atzor. Atzor would mean to stop or lahafsik. Why does he use the word to be quiet? And here Chazal says something very fascinating. And that is, it's written that every creation of Hashem says shira. It's constantly saying shira, constantly singing out to Hashem their praises. Now we, as human beings, have the ability to choose to say shira with our mouths. But every animal and every bird, in fact, there's an entire Sefer called Perik Shira, which describes what is the Shira, what is the song of every individual creation, whether they say it consciously or subconsciously. Now, says Chasidus, it's really, it's, it's really Mefarshim, that the movement of the sun and the movement of the moon is all part of their Shira. As they're singing to Hashem, they're praising Hashem, they're bowing to Hashem. Um, the Pasik says, Utsvah, we say it in Davening, l'cha mishtachavim, that the hosts of heaven, we say it in Shachris in the section that starts with the words, David, that the hosts of heaven are always bowing to you. And the Gemara says, and the Alter Eber brings it in Tanya as well, that the reason why everything is going westward, the sun and everything is moving westward, is because the Shekhinah is on the west, Shekhinah B'mayrev, and it's all one big bowing to Hashem. So when Yeshua says, he wants the son to stop its bowing he says stop saying shira i want you n- now not to say your shira not to say your regular shira your regular praise of hashem which is accompanied by your bowing to hashem i want you to stop now and that's why he uses that word of shemesh be given doin it's not just about stopping your movement it's really stopping the movement which is an expression of the shira that you're saying to hashem now the yalkut shimoni which is a medrash says tells us of a fascinating um, dialogue between Yeshua and the Son. Yeshua tells the Son, I want you to stop. And the Son says, um, so he says, what do you mean I should stop? Mi yagid Who is going to praise Hashem in, in my place? And Yeshua says, Shtoik, I want you now to not praise. Vani yagid, I'll say the shira instead of you. I'll take you over, says Yeshua. That's what the Medrash says, the Yalka Shemani. And the Rebbe discusses this Medrash, and he asks, he says, what did the Son mean? Uh, j- just because the Son is not going to praise, so no one else will praise? I mean, like, the sh- this, the sun, Yeshua is telling the Son, you don't say your Shira now. Others will say. But the Son seems perturbed. The Son says, no, I have my special Shira. No one could do my job. My job is my unique Shira that I give to Hashem. And what Yeshua is telling the Son is, that sometimes the greatest praise we can give is by being quiet. Sometimes it's not about what I'm saying, it's it's by not saying, it's by not being. Sometimes the ultimate praise is bitul, is not talking, holding back. And that's what Yeshua is telling the Son. At this point, in order for Hashem's praise to be brought out to the world, in order for Hashem's greatness to be brought out to the world, you're going to accomplish that, by not speaking, by not being the one who will say the shira, it's the nace that will be performed, that's going to bring out the, the shavach, the shir, the um, praise of Hashem, more so than your actual saying shira. And that's what Yeshua tells the Son, and of course that becomes one of those great nisim, one of those great nisim of all time. Um, yeah, in, uh, in Chabad history we have... Uh, that day also became later the day the Friedrich Rebbe was released from his uh, death sentence from prison. I'm sorry, the Friedrich Rebbe was in prison and he was released from prison and sent to exile. That was also in Gimel Tamos. And of course, in our in our generation, that was the yard the site of the Rebbe. But that is the day that in Tanakh is the day of one of the great Nisim of all time when Yeshua says, Shemesh Begiv and Doim. And it's, it's, the, the Psukim say that at this day Yeshua's greatness became known to the world in an un, in an unparalleled pa- paralleled way because of this tremendous nas that happened all during that battle which really started out to protect the Givonim. And that's just an interesting ending to that part of the story. This is all a battle that the Jewish people only did not even for themselves, right? It is because Given, who who were the ones who tricked the Jewish people were being beset upon and be, and Yeshua, as we said is even questioning whether he should go into that battle. But he does and what he does not only are they successful in that battle, and not only are they able to conquer five additional nations of the land of Baris Yisrael, but they're also recipients of these two um, fabulous miracles of those, those rocks of hail that are still coming from the Barad, from Mitzrayim, and then the second and greatest of miracles of Shemesh Begiven time. And the chapter continues and finishes off with a couple of more battles of nations of, of, of that time. And that really takes us through a uh, parik Yud Aleph as well. The 11th chapter is just a continuation of battles. And again, it's not a parik that I'm going to spend time on. It's because it's all names of kings and places, most of which that we don't recognize at all, don't exist anymore. But as I said, there was 31 kings and all of them are mentioned one by one and the battles that they wage. And Hashem is with Kali Yisrael and miraculously, they're able to battle each one of those nations. Now, it's interesting that here the Jewish people are battling and being victorious nation after nation, you think that other nations would also leave. Right? Because again, they were given that you know ability, as we said from Rambam right in the beginning. And yet the pusik says, no, that Hashem, the, the wording that the Torah uses is similar to what the Torah used by Pari, that Hashem hardened his heart. Now, by Pari also, it didn't make sense. He saw that he was losing time after time miraculously. Why did Pari keep on being obstinate? The pusik says, Ki Hashem um, es Hashem hardened his heart because he was such a wicked person and this is ultimately what he had to be destroyed. And this is what's happening to these nations of Eretz that they, they never, aside from that one that left in the beginning, none of them are going to leave. All of them are going to battle one by one by one with the Jewish people and Hashem is going to be with them and they're going to be victorious by every one of them. So throughout chapter Yud Aleph, 11, again, the Pasuk goes through a number of those battles and the success of Kalal Yisrael in each one. The Pasuk um, says there, Yomim Rabbim Asa Yehoshua Melchama, that for many, many years, Yeshua uh, waged these battles for a number of years. And although in the Pasuk it's not clear, but Chazal actually tell us that that was a critique against Yehoshua. The reason it was a critique is because Yehoshua knew that it was his mission to to fight these battles. And Yeshua knew that he was going to live until that mission was accomplished. And therefore, he wasn't in a rush to finish it because he sort of had a an insurance, life insurance policy over here. As long as it takes, he's there to lead the Jewish people. And therefore, he, he wasn't in a rush. And here, Chazal, the Gemara, and, and as great as a tzaddik as Yeshua is, the Gemara here finds a critique and says that he's different than Moshe. Because when it comes to Moshe Rabbeinu, Hashem tells Moshe with regard to the war, the battle with Midyan, this goes back to Pashas Matos, Hashem tells Moshe, wage a battle against Midian, and then you will pass away. And the passage right away says, Moshe gathers the people, says let's go fight against Midyon and wage the battle of Hashem. And the Gemara says, Moshe knew that after this battle he's going to pass away. But that didn't cause Moshe in any way to tarry, to, to uh, push it off. This was the Ratzon and Hashem. This is the will of Hashem. That's what has to happen. And if uh, my life is connected to it, so that's Hashem's business, not mine. And here, the says, but Yeshua wasn't that way. Yeshua knew that he had the mission of conquering all the lands, all the nations in Eretz Israel. And therefore, he wasn't in a rush. And that's what the passing means when it says that. Uh, um, the battles took took many years, took a number of years until he was able to be victorious. So he was victorious, but it was seen as a weak a weak link in Yeshua. And the Gemara says that's why Moshe lived till 120 and Yeshua ultimately lived till 110. Now 110 is also a riches but it was less than Moshe because he was looking to prolong his life by sort of not rushing to do what Hashem said. Ultimately, because of that, he ended up living less. Then Moshe Rabbeinu, his teacher, and that's an idea from Perikod Aleph. And in Perikod Beis, chapter 12, the pasuk goes through all the 31 kings, each one by name, and the 31 nations that were ultimately conquered by Yehoshua. And that takes us till the end of chapter 12, where again, where the navi goes through each one and gets the name of each place and so on. And chapter 13 already starts the end of the days of Yehoshua, which we will blineder deal with next week in Mirza Hashem.